At AGI, we take grain bin safety seriously. With Bin Manager, from the convenience of your smartphone, you can know the condition of stored grain without having to climb a ladder or stairs to monitor temperature and moisture. AGI Bin Manager is fully automated, meaning you can trust that grain is safe and in condition without returning to the bin to turn on or off fans and heaters. With advanced algorithms to optimize fan and heater controls, you can be confident that your hard-earned harvest will be in condition when it is time to sell. Find AGI Bin Manager at aggrowth.com digital. Hi, I'm Caitlin Dubin, and this is the Rural Woman Podcast. I'm a first-generation farmer who married into agriculture. Born and raised in a city, I was so unfamiliar with where my food came from, but I was determined to figure it out. Through my journey into agriculture, I saw women who were strong but humble, often taking a back seat. To me, these women were leaders who deserved a seat at the table. I created the Rural Woman Podcast to share the voices of women in an industry whose stories often went untold. The rural entrepreneurs who live and breathe their work, full of grit and pride. We come here to share our stories, to be in community with each other, to be challenged and inspired, but most importantly, to be celebrated and to be heard. We may not all live, farm, ranch or homestead the same, but we are all connected. We are rural women and our stories are worthy of being told. Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode of the Rural Woman Podcast. This week, you'll meet Hannah Konshu. Hannah is a grain farmer operating Generation Land and Grain Co. near Clooney, Alberta, joining her family farm as part of their succession plan. Prior to that, Hannah completed a Bachelor of Science in Agriculture and Master of Science in Soil Science at the University of Saskatchewan and worked in a number of research and policy roles. Hannah co-launched a podcast called The Diversity Imperative, a podcast about unearthing the agriculture sector's diversity potential, has garnered broad industry support and explores many issues related to diversity, equity, and inclusion, including making space for the nuanced dialogue and making diversity and inclusion a topic that everyone across the agricultural sector is comfortable engaging in. I am looking forward to you meeting my friend Hannah, who I actually had the pleasure of meeting in real life at a recent conference that I attended. Before we get to Hannah's interview, let's go over this week's listener review. This week's five-star rating and review is titled, I Love This Podcast. Caitlin is such an incredible voice and has created a home-like community for women in agriculture. She has opened my eyes to some of the amazing, strong, and wonderful women who are passionate about similar things as me. I've had the opportunity to create friendships from listening to this podcast. Not only am I a longtime listener of the Rural Woman podcast, but Caitlin has helped me start my own podcast through her podcast coaching. She was patient, kind, and set me up for success, then led me to be a part of the Positively Farming Media Network, which has more people I am grateful to call my friends. Thank you, Caitlin, for being such a light in this world, bringing people together and sharing so many wonderful stories. 
That wonderful rating and review is from my friend Erica, who you all heard on a recent episode of the Rural Woman Podcast. So thank you so much for your kind rating and review over on Apple. If you haven't left a rating and review, I would encourage you to do so as I am running out of kind words to read on air during these intros to our episodes. So I would love it if you could leave a rating and a review wherever you get your podcast. This helps other like-minded people find the stories of women in agriculture. And I wanted to say a big hello and welcome to our newest patron of the Rural Woman Podcast, Allison W., Thank you so much for your financial support of the Rural Woman Podcast. Allison now has access to ad-free listening, extended episodes, as well as my patron-only podcast, Maybe You Can Relate, which if you didn't see earlier this week, there was a new episode released all about being a female farmer. To learn more about how you can support the stories of women in agriculture to be shared through the Rural Woman podcast, you can head on over to wildrosefarmer.com and learn more about how you can become a patron through Patreon. Without further ado, my friends, let's get to this week's episode with Hannah. Hello, Hannah. Welcome to the Rural Woman Podcast. How are you? I'm doing really well. I'm so glad to be here with you. I am so glad to be here with you too. I feel like, you know, we're just two girlfriends having a cup of coffee on a Monday afternoon. So (laughs) yeah, no other way I'd like to spend it, to be honest. Honestly, honestly. Hannah, for the folks who are unfamiliar with you, introduce yourself and tell us how you got your start in agriculture. Sure. So my name is Hannah Conchu. I run a grain farm called Generation Land and Grain Company Limited in Southern Alberta. We're, if you looked at a map of Southern Alberta, we're right smack in the middle of, of Calgary and Medicine Hat. So we're a dry land grain farm. We grow wheat, peas, barley, and canola. And I had some big plans to try one new crop this year, but I think I might be holding off on that just based on some of the, the growing conditions that we're seeing. But My start in agriculture didn't really happen until, it wasn't even really on the radar for me until I was in my mid-20s. So I was working in Saskatoon, actually. That's where I went to school. And I was finishing up a contract with Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada in a research position. And I think my parents identified that I was kind of at a place where I was thinking about next steps. And so really, it just came down to a phone call with them where they, they asked me if I was interested in coming back to the farm in Alberta. And so, yeah, the rest is basically history. That's kind of how it all happened for me. So growing up on the farm, was it ever your intention to be a full-time farmer? No, it really wasn't. And actually this, the story of my farm probably has a little bit to do with that too. So my farm is actually quite young. My parents started this farm after a split from my dad's farming operation. So really my dad's the first generation and and I'll be the second. So when I was a kid, so I'm the youngest of three girls, they were kind of doing a a thing where they were driving back and forth from Strathmore to the farm, which is about 45 minutes away. And so oftentimes I'd be with my dad, you know, it's like, where do we send the youngest kid? And so I'd, you know, tag along with my dad doing lots of farm jobs and going to farm shows and, and things like that. So I was definitely his little helper, but so I was involved, but it was never really a thought in my mind that I could do what, what he did or what my parents did. So 
yeah, I guess you could say I was involved and I knew about farming, but it wasn't really something that was, yeah, something that I thought that would be in my future. Yeah. Well, and when you're kind of just the tag along and uh, filling in the buddy seat, there's times where I'm sure, you know, it was quite boring or you thought I would much rather be doing something else and not being, you know, drug along <laughs> throughout field to field. Yeah. And you know what, to be honest, when I was a like a, you know, you know, kind of little kid, like 12 and under, sometimes I really hated it because I had to leave town where my, you know, my bike and my rollerblades and my friends were. And I had to go, you know, sit in the car with my dad for a long time or kind of just take along, like you say. But once I got older and, and I was more involved in everyday things and, and learning things, that's kind of, yeah, when it became, you know, less boring and more engaging for me. For sure. So looking back now, did you picture yourself working in agriculture in some capacity? Like you said, you were working in Saskatchewan. Is that where you saw your future? Yeah, absolutely. So I did, so my university education was centered around agriculture. So I did a bachelor of science in agriculture and then worked for a while and then went back and did a master of science in soil science. And I was working for agriculture in Agri-Food Canada for a while. So all of my, all of my, you know, post-secondary education and training that I did after high school were all related to agriculture. So I was kind of on a research track. So I could have been doing, you know, working in a, for a a scientist in a research program or working for a, a life science company, doing that sort of thing. A few people from my program went the oil and gas route because of your environmental and, and science, soil science education. But for me, I was kind of strictly doing things on the, the agriculture side. So for sure, yeah, I think I would have ended up in the agriculture sector. Well, I guess I was working in the agriculture sector, but yeah, but still farming wasn't quite on my radar. Yeah. So take us back to that first year or two back on the farm. Once you've received that phone call and made that decision, what was it like moving back home and starting this new journey for yourself? It was interesting. I mean, it came with a few other big things like moving, uh, moving provinces. I'd lived there for quite some time. I also, before I made the decision to go full-time farming, I still worked at the Alberta Wheat Commission in uh, Calgary. I did, I filled two mat leave positions there before I moved back to the farm completely. So it was a lot. I was, you know, trying to make myself feel useful on the farm. So learn a lot of things really quickly. I basically, I had it in my mind that I needed to be like, do everything my dad did. And so it was just a lot. And so, yeah, to transition from sort of like a salaried position with benefits and, and weekends to, you know, basically trying to do two jobs. It was, it was a lot. And my, my husband also moved with me. And so we were living on the farm in a loft above a garage, which was actually the first building that went up on our farm. So it was, it was exciting, but it was, it was just a lot. Did your husband come from an agriculture background as well? He, yeah, he did. So he grew up on a farm in Allen, Saskatchewan. And yeah, the reason that, you know, he was up for the move and for joining my farm was that the, the opportunity for him to farm never really arose on his own farm. His, he was the youngest sibling of many and the, the farm story was kind of already written before he kind of had the chance to, to get involved. So it took a bit of convincing, but yeah, I think he's, he's glad he, he made the choice he did. So that's all good. Yeah, for sure. Well, and it's always nice to have a partner who is familiar with the lifestyle of agriculture and farming. Uh, it's 
somewhat less of a transition. I know it's always a transition from farm to farm because not everybody does everything the same from, you know, even your neighbors can do things completely different than you. So those are always big transitions, but maybe a little bit less when they know kind of what they can be expecting. Yeah, for sure. So tell me more about what it's been like, you know, Hannah, you are relatively young. So as a farmer, what has it been like thinking about transitioning and transition planning to being the full-time sole farmer on your farm? Well, transition planning, it's been something that's taken up a lot of our energy and that was intentional for a reason, mostly motivated by the fact that my parents' succession plan didn't work out for them. So of course that's, you know, thinking about how their farm split off when they were farming with my dad's parents. So for us, we, we really wanted to, to be intentional about it. So we've actually, we spent a lot of time on it. So lots of time thinking about sort of like the legal ramifications of it. So what does it look like on paper, on the corporate side? And now we're really working through what does it look like on the operational side? Because those two things are very separate. So when it comes to decision-making and we're, you know, you can sort of think about it like an org chart, like you would in any other business. So who's doing what and who gets the final call and where are we making decisions by consensus, all those, all those sorts of things. And so I guess I, I would say that I was surprised. I still am surprised by how much energy that requires, because I think, you know, everyone's busy and sometimes communication sort of falls by the wayside because you're all doing so many things at once but it really is sort of a vital part of our success. And I think we just like any farm, we have ups and downs where we're, you know, getting along really well. And then maybe we have some things to work out, but it is, yeah, it's been really important for us to spend lots of time on that. Yeah. I think it's so important what you said about, you know, it comes and goes, but the importance of it is still there. You still need to talk about these things regardless of you know, what's going on in your farm and how busy you are and those kinds of things and keeping those open lines of communication. Because I think with transition planning, especially like if those lines of communication get crossed, then feelings can be brought into things and feelings can get hurt. And sometimes it goes downhill from there, but keeping that conversation going. And I think no matter at what age you are, I think the older generation or the younger generation, having these conversations are so, so important. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And really thinking about what, what everybody needs, right. So, because that's very different for what I need at, you know, 35 versus what my parents need at, you know, they're thinking about retirement, right. So there's, yeah, just so many important things to, to keep in mind when you're having these conversations. For sure. So I want to jump into some maybe off farm work that you are a part of that still relates to the farm. You have done a lot of things in your agriculture career. And I kind of, when I was reading about you and coming up with my questions, I fangirled a little bit because I don't think I realized that you were the first woman to serve on the board of the Alberta Wheat Commission. So Tell me what that experience was like for you being the first woman to do that, as well as what drove you to make that decision that you wanted to be a part of that. Yeah, I, I was the first woman to serve on that board, but I feel like I should qualify it a little by saying that that 
organization started when the the wheat board was dismantled. So uh, around 2012. So it is still is a relatively you know young organization, but it still feels like something that we should recognize because it is a the the lack of women in leadership positions, especially on primary producer run organizations. It's still an issue. And now that I've served on that board and and termed out, the the issue still exists. So it is still it's something that's very the topic of gender diversity on in leadership positions in our, our sector is something that is yeah very near and dear to my heart. So the reason that I sort of had a connection to that organization is of course because I I filled a contract position there. And so then I went full-time farming. And so because of that connection, those people knew me. They thought, oh hey, well Hannah's a farmer. She knows what we're all about. She can serve on this board. And so I put my my name in the hat and I, you know, ran for the leadership position in region two and was elected. And yeah, I'm I'm so glad I did that. It was it's such a a thankless job. I mean, of course, we are there's per diems and you are compensated for your travel and and for all the things you participate in, but there's such a vital amount of work that goes on behind the scenes in these organizations. Of course, they're managing checkoff dollars and filtering that money into so many important programs like market development and research is a huge one and, and policy, you know, working with policymakers, you know, so many important things that affect farmers. So yeah, I just, I I look back on it and there were so many things I learned and so many great, great people I got to meet but like most things in life, there was also some really challenging conversations and challenging moments that I had, especially once I realized that one of the, the key things for me was thinking about who is doing the leading. So who was at the table and, and who is making decisions. So while I'm so glad I did it, there's definitely some things I hope for in the future when it comes to how these organizations are doing their own succession planning and, and transition planning and thinking about who is doing the leading and who's at the table. Right. For sure. And it's funny. So Hannah, you and I have been connected for quite some time now through podcasting and being a woman in agriculture in Alberta and all of these great things. And it's funny. I feel like for me, kind of the theme of this year so far for me in the conversations and discussions I've been having with people, there's been a lot to do with leadership and specifically women in leadership when it comes to agriculture, when it comes to podcasting, when it comes to a whole bunch of different things. And it's really interesting, regardless of what industry I'm talking about, there are still issues when women are faced in these leadership roles that have overlapped from multiple conversations that I've had. So I'm excited to dive more into this with you. Back in February of 2021, you co-wrote a piece that was titled, It's Time to Finally Address the Lack of Diversity in Agriculture. Tell us more about that piece, why you wrote it, and what was the reaction that you received from it? So, wow, it feels like so long ago that my my friend Aaron Garlick and I wrote that, but we were really sort of feeling, you know, it was... January, we're feeling the new year vibes and really just feeling like there's been just like you say, so much momentum around women in leadership and diversity generally in our sector, but we've all been talking about it and there's lots of awareness, but what are we really willing to do or what, what are we doing about it? And so that was the main goal behind that piece. 
And so we, you know, we pulled in lots of supporting information that shows what happens in an organization and you sort of related that to our sector. And so this is, you know, sort of like, this is the potential for where we can go if we're willing to have some of these hard conversations. So for the most part, we had good feedback. I would say we used some more bold language than either of us is used to. And I think for that reason, we also had some negative pushback. So, well, the people that felt comfortable saying it out loud said that, you know, we were painting our industry with a bad brush and things are fine the way they are. And yeah, and just people not really uh, appreciating the tone of the of the article. And so, yeah, on one hand, I can I can understand that. But on the other hand, a lot of organizations and a lot of people are comfortable creating awareness and celebrating when it comes to these things. But then when you want to start really talking about, well, here's where the rubber meets the road and this is what we need to do. Then it's like, oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. We celebrated you already. (laughs) We said that you could have your day, you know? So, yeah. So I think it's a a bunch of those things kind of all wrapped up in one, but it was, it definitely got people talking. So. Well, and that I think is what needs to happen and what needed to happen and unfortunately still needs to happen. You know, we can read articles and like you said, there's, there's really nice fluff pieces out there of what the nice things that we can do to include everyone. And when those nice fluff pieces come out, people get the warm fuzzies. We have our day, we have a month, we have all of these things. And then when we sit back and think about it afterwards, like you said, when the rubber meets the road, what actually happened because of that. And, you know, it was interesting. I took a look through some of the comments and things that were said around that article. And I find it really interesting, the people who disagreed with the things and what I use the term fundamentally crusty, what they got fundamentally crusty about. And to me, I just kind of like, I I shake my head about it. And like you said, the people who think that it's fine the way that it is, I always want to ask them the follow-up questions, right? Like I always wonder, did they grow up in agriculture? Probably yes. Do they agree with gender equality and, you know, having a seat at the table, all of these things. Like there's so many follow-up questions. I want to say, well, what is it that you agree with or what is it that you disagree with and why? And it's funny to me, sometimes I look at them and I think like, do they not know the meanings of these words and the impact on our industry and the amount of people that it is restricting them from having the full potential in our industry. Yeah. And I, I mean, if that's what you're kind of talking about is, is empathy and thinking about other people other than yourself. So if, if you're middle-aged nearing the end of your career and it's been fine for you, that's wonderful. But we're, you know, there's a lot of people who we need to join our sector, right? And we're thinking about innovation and new technologies and just like sheer labor. Like we hardly have, we don't have enough people to fill jobs. Right. So if people can, I mean, I feel like that's my, if that could be the one thing I could ask of people, that's what it would be. So, you know, think about the other people other than yourself. Think about the young females or the, you know, racialized Canadians that might want to join our sector. Like it might be different. They might be having a different experience. Right. Well, one of the conversations that I have had recently, 
So on International Women's Day, I had the opportunity to sit down with the Ag Minister of Canada in a roundtable with some other amazing women in our industry, whether they were producers or whether they worked in the food sector. And one of the topics we talked about was leadership. And one of the topics that was brought up was that there are organizations and boards that have the pink seat. So they have a certain number of women that have to be on their boards. And they, again, have done that because that's what they were told is what we wanted. We wanted a seat at the table. But then the negative that was brought out of that was, though they are sitting there, are they being heard Are they the ones that are leading? Are they the ones that are just sitting there to fill the seat? So what's your take on the pink seats in agriculture and in our industry? Yeah, well, I mean, I think if an organization puts a pink seat or a quota in place, or I mean, I don't like to use quota that that way to describe it anymore. I sort of think of it as a, a directive or a target. If they decide that they would like to have, you know, three of 12 seats filled with BIPOC members or women. I feel like that's a bold move. And it and people have a, the choice of what their attitude is around that, right? So, oh, you know, the seat that we have to fill, or no, this is going to be an opportunity to invite, to, to work really hard to invite pe- other people to the table that don't get to sit here. So that that to me is just a small part of it, because like you say, when people get there, Is their value, is their contribution valued? And is what they are saying at the table, are you really listening? And are they having the opportunity to make a meaningful contribution? And so, you know, just counting who is there and looking at who's there is much different than doing than doing that, right? Than having a conversation about how are we really truly going to, you know, make the magic happen in this organization by valuing everyone's voice. And so yeah, honestly, I think that that is, that's probably where all the work is because it's very easy to, well, I don't want to say easy, but it is, it's a low stakes thing on, you know, International Women's Day or on, you know, a day where we're celebrating Indigenous history. It's really easy to say, well, look at all these people that work with us or work within our organization. But basically you're just counting. You're just saying, this is who's here, but like, show us, your homework shows the receipts. Like, what are you doing to measure inclusion in your organization? And how has that contributed to, you know, your success? Like, that's the hard stuff, I think. Well, and that's the thing. Show us the receipts and what you've done besides the bare minimum, right? And I think over the last several years, we've all discovered what the bare minimum is. And it's really unfortunate that, you know, for so long, it's been the status quo of even getting to that bare minimum, but actually moving forward and putting the rubber to the road. Maybe that's what we should call the episode, Hannah, but uh, (laughs) getting to the point where these voices are actually being heard and they're being valued and they are able to bring themselves and representation into these areas that they so desperately need to be in. In your experience now, you've been, you know, on boards, you've done a lot of work when it comes to diversity in our industry. What have been some of the changes, the positive changes that you've seen in the last several years? I think one of the biggest things has been 
people's comfort around joining the conversation. So in the last question you asked me, I was kind of being hard on people for, you know, like, let's do the hard, the hard stuff. But I actually think that there is a lot to be said for just getting comfortable engaging in the conversation. So can you say, can you acknowledge that you have racialized employees or that there might be someone from the, you know, LGBTQ plus community in your organization that might see things differently? Like, can you say the words? Can you just, you know, pull up a seat and and join the conversation? So that to me is really positive. And I've had conversations with people that I never thought I would about these topics and just curiosity, even people just truly being curious about a topic as opposed to wanting to debate me about it right away or, you know, tell me what their opinion is. So I think, yeah, curiosity is a huge one. And I think we've already seen a few organizations. So I'm thinking about like Syngenta and the work that they're doing internally. They're spending dollars and spending effort on on really trying to get it right for the organization, not necessarily being right, but getting it right. And I think that journey sort of ebbs and flows for organizations like that, right? You're not always going to know what the answer is or what the the end goal is. So those are all, you know, really positive things that that I've seen happen since I sort of officially joined the conversation. Well, and you made some great points there. And I think the best thing that any one of us can do, whether you are a part of an organization or on a board or anything, is just be curious, right? Like, and instead of being right, get it right. Because I think there are so many people that are so afraid of screwing up. And I hate to tell you this, listener, you're going to screw up. I've screwed up. I'm sure Hannah's screwed up. Like we've all done it. We've all said things or done things that, you know, you can look back and cringe on, but those cringy moments are where you learn from. And I think when you take the time to reflect back on those moments and try and find the learning pieces from there, that's when you're going to start getting it right in the future because you know, when you know better, you do better. So we screwed up. We, you know, we said things or we did things that we're not proud of. Recognize the privilege in that and know that you're able to make it right. Because there are people in this world that don't get that privilege to make it right again. So I think that in itself is something that we get to do. I'm so happy that there are people like you and there's organizations that are out there that are willing to have the awkward conversations and, you know, work towards getting it right and being more inclusive and the conversations that you get to have on your podcast. So tell us more about the diversity imperative and what it's all about. Sure. Yeah. So the Diversity Imperative podcast came to be right around that time that we we put out that op-ed about our industry needing to make bold moves when it comes to diversity and inclusion. And Aaron and I, we really just wanted to create a space where we could have more nuanced conversations about diversity, equity, and inclusion, because we were finding that on certain platforms, it was just, we were just having very unproductive conversations. And so we thought, how can we do this? differently. And it was actually after a very challenging exchange we had about a fantastic article that basically said, this is what your organization can stand to gain if you think about diversity at the board level. And we just had a, you know, a very frustrating exchange on Twitter, but I woke up the next day and was feeling very defeated. But my positive friend, Aaron called me and said, let's have this conversation a different way. Let's, 
let's start a podcast. And so that's kind of where it, it all came from. But it's, it's just been such a, a great way to bring in other leaders and other voices to learn from them and to then be able to share that uh, with our sector. And so, yeah, that's basically it. And it's been, it's been so fun. And we're, we're actually recording season two right now. I have two other fantastic conversations to be recorded this week. And in season one, we kind of focus more on, on leadership and kind of what it takes to get your, your head around engaging in the conversation. And in season two, we're going to think more about practical strategies and, and ways that we can all take small steps in our own, our own life. So I'm really excited to, to get season two out there. It is so well done. And you and Aaron have such interesting conversations and such important conversations that I, I cannot encourage my listeners enough to go over and listen to the Diversity Imperative podcast. And it can be found wherever you find the Rural Women podcast. And we'll link it in the show notes. Hannah, what have been some of the biggest takeaways from the guests that you've had on the show? Ugh. Well, there's been so many, but I think, I think the biggest one has been to make space in your own life to consider other people's perspectives and to kind of just, yeah, give yourself time to, to sit with it and not necessarily to jump into action. And I'm thinking about two conversations in particular. The first was the, the episode we recorded with Julia Romanoli about the Pride and Egg Instagram account that she started. And she said something so simple, but profound. It was something like, I realized I needed to be authentically me for the benefit of others. And just that, that just really got us. And so, yeah, just making space, I think, to think about other people's perspectives and the way that, you know, life might be different for them. Yeah, it's just huge. And then one of my favorite conversations that actually turned into a two-part thing was the, the conversation that started with Dr. Melissa Arcand about Indigenous farming and how she supports Indigenous land managers through the University of Saskatchewan. She's also a soil science professor. And then from that conversation, she led us to a book and we actually got to speak to the author of Lost Harvest, Dr. Sarah Carter from the U of A. So then we got to really, you know, research and sit with all of the information that we have about how government policy really did First Nations farmers a disservice when Canada was being developed. So yeah, just the opportunity to sort of dive a little deeper into those conversations. Yeah, it was just wonderful. Those podcasts, the two-part series that you did were, they were huge. And especially in the year 2021, and if you are Canadian, to hear those stories from Indigenous people in a time where there was a lot of discovery happening in our country and stories that were being told that, you know, a lot of people didn't know about. And I, yeah, I can't say enough good things about that. And, you know, being a farmer now and being on the land and all of these things and knowing what you know now. And like you said, just being able to sit with other people's experiences and know how they feel, you're not going to fix it. Like, and I can just say it right now, you're not going to fix this. You're not going to fix these feelings and you can't change the world. But, you know, going forward, knowing that these experiences have happened to other people and being empathetic towards that and thinking about ways that you can include people in your practices and in your operations and expand 
that table to have people pull up a seat and their stories and their voices to really be heard. I don't think you need to be on a national level to do those things. You can do that in your own backyard and on your own farm. Absolutely. Yeah. Couldn't have said that any better. Growers have a lot to consider when it comes to storing grain. Are you getting the most out of your on-farm grain storage? Could an aeration model help to better determine fan, heater, or dryer needs? And what is the ROI if you installed a bin manager system to remote monitor and control in-bin grain conditioning? At AGI, we want you to ask the tough questions about how Bin Manager allows growers like you to know exactly what is happening inside your bins without climbing a ladder or stairs, or how you can benefit from remotely monitoring your grain temperature and moisture from a smartphone, or how fully automated fans and heaters can provide peace of mind all season long. Contact an AGI representative today for a free on-farm smart storage assessment. Find AGI Bin Manager at aggrowth.com digital. That's aggrowth.com digital. So what's next for you, Hannah, on your farm for the podcast, all of the things? What's going to happen now? Well... I'm thinking a lot about rain. We're <laughs> still really dry after 2021. So if it would just rain a little bit, that would be great. Then I'd probably give myself some more room for dreaming and scheming and, and big plans when it comes to the farm. But yeah, we're just going to keep at it that way. Since stepping off of the wheat commission, I've got involved with a local surface rights group. So that's been kind of keeping me busy outside of farming. And yeah, the podcast is really the the biggest thing bringing me joy these days, of course, because we're kind of in production mode. So yeah, that's kind of how I'm spending my time. I want to ask about, you know, the drought of 2021. Everybody kind of seems to have similar stories, but how has your farm kind of adapted to what the landscape is going to look like for 2022 and on if, like you said, if it doesn't rain? Yeah, well... We, because we were able to source our fertilizer before the price, you know, went really out of control, we don't have huge plans to cut our fertilizer back because of price, but it still is really dry. Like the ground is cracking. I think the frost is coming out of the ground. I haven't really been digging around too much, but there is the risk of, you know, burning seedlings if you, if you are fertilizing at full rate. So we are going to be thinking about how we, we fertilize. And in a lot of ways, we're going back to basics because when you've had a, a hard financial year like that, you, you really have, we feel like we have less freedom to try to try new things. And so, yeah, I had plans to try a field of, of lentils, but of course the price of seed is quite expensive. So with, which, I mean, it's following the market price, right? So yeah, we're kind of going back to basics, just hoping things are going to grow. So yeah, it is kind of, it's also taking kind of, kind of a mental toll, right? It's sort of, you think about it all the time, like checking the forecast all the time. Like, is it actually going to rain or are they just tricking me that it's going to rain? But yeah, well, I mean, we're going to get through it either way, right? We're pretty lucky that we have, you know, crop, a good crop insurance program and, and that to support us. So. Absolutely. One of the things that was said to me earlier on in my farming career, it's funny, first harvest we took off was was fall of 2017 for me. And I have to say like, that was, you know, it, we were done by mid September. It went off smooth. Like it was pretty good. 
And then it was, I think it was the next year, it was snowing in September and uh, there was hemp crops under snow. And uh, I remember it being said that, you know, well, we get to do it all again next year. And that has been something that has kind of stuck with me from that and far past the crops in the field. It's like, well, we get to try again. And I think that's I think that's a mentality that a lot of farmers and ranchers and people in industry have. But you had mentioned the the word mental health here. And I know you've done some work with the Do More Agriculture Foundation through their community fund. So can you tell us a little bit about that before we wrap up? Yeah, sure. So I think it was 2017 or 2018, they launched Doomer Egg, the Doomer Agriculture Foundation launched their community fund, which was a way to get um, mental health training out to communities across Canada. And so I jumped at the chance to do that because really they were providing the funding and all you had to do was to make it happen. So I thought, what the heck, I'm going to apply for Strathmore area. And yeah, they, they picked our town. So that was really such a, a great way for me to to volunteer my time because when I think about the importance of mental health in our sector, I selfishly want to be able to work in an industry and have my family work in an industry where we can all, you know, freely speak about our struggles because farming, there's full of so many ups and downs and, and so is life for everybody, right? And so once we got to that, the two-day course, we actually put on the full two-day mental health first aid course. It was yeah, it was it was one of those events that really changed me because I got to hear, you know, from all sorts of people from, you know, veterinary technicians and from people who work in in like input sales and the the hard conversations they've had with clients. So, yeah, it really just identified the need that's out there and so, yeah, I'm just grateful for the work that Dumar does every day to to sort of move the needle on mental health. I had the opportunity to do the mental health first aid in my previous career working in post-secondary. So, you know, talking with students and that kind of thing. But I just remember the powerful impact of learning, you know, the right terms to use even, like how we speak about mental health and your wellness and all of those things. And just knowing those things now, being able to share my own story and be vulnerable with people and to let them know that, you know, they're not struggling alone, that there are many people out there experiencing the same things that they are. And just having those tools in my back pocket, not only for myself to make myself feel better, but to know that if there is somebody that does need the help, knowing that there's tools and resources out there and knowing how to speak to somebody and treat them with the respect that I hope a professional would treat me with, not saying that I'm anywhere close to a mental health professional, but just having the language to speak to people and, you know, for Do More Ag to be able to offer this in the capacity for agriculture itself. I know there are a lot of people who struggle with reaching out and asking for help because maybe they had in the past and the advice from the professional that they got was not directly related to agriculture. And I know that can be really disheartening for people to hear that this is what's going to work for you to make you feel better. And it's something that's so far out of their reach because it just doesn't work within our industry. And I always feel so 
so silly for saying that because it's just like, well, we have a brain, you know, person who lives in town has a brain, like our mental health, like shouldn't be that different. But when our lifestyle is so completely different from the outside world, to know that there are people like you and other producers across Canada who have gotten this training from an organization who really cares about farmers, like I can't, I can never sing their praises enough of what they have been able to accomplish in such a short amount of time for producers here in Canada. Mm-hmm. And you know, the that piece you're talking about is, you know, when you're thinking about how care might be different for a farmer or a rancher, it's kind of like a cultural competency, right? It's something where you might need to know extra background information about what that person has gone through. And because I actually had the chance to help do more with some stuff over the past year, this is another, probably a good time to, to say that they have a, a course specifically for mental health professionals called egg culture. And so, yeah, that course is a, a great place for anyone who interfaces with farmers and ranchers to go to, to sort of increase their knowledge about, you know, some of the unique stressors that farmers and ranchers might experience. Yeah. Because, you know, if if the mental health professional doesn't live this lifestyle, it could be completely foreign to them of what we do and how we operate. And what do you mean you worked for 16 hours yesterday? Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's not healthy. Well, obviously. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or you can't take two weeks off and, you know, take a breather. Like, it's not an option sometimes. Yeah, yeah exactly. So, so great. And I'm going to make sure to link all of those in the show notes so people can find out more information about Do More Egg if they haven't done so already. And my last question for you, Hannah, is what is the most rewarding part about being a farmer for you? Oh, you know, I think it would have to be choice because, yeah, I love that every day I get to wake up and decide what my day is going to look like and, you know, how I want it to how I want things to go for my business and who I get to connect with and and learn with. So yeah, I think it's just choice. That is a good answer. That's a good one. And something I don't think we think about that often, how lucky you are to get to work in the industry that we do. And, you know, we, we're entrepreneurs, we're business owners, we get to make those choices. So that's great. For the listeners who would like to connect with you after the show, Hannah, where can they find you online? You can find me on Twitter at H-J-K-I-Z-Z. That's, yeah, H-K-I-Z. That's uh, a handle that carried through from my younger days. And then you can find information about the podcast at diversityimperative.ca. And then you can link to all our, our socials there too. And I guess I also have a website for my farm. So maybe I'll send you the link for that one, Caitlin, because it's a little complicated. Perfect. I will link everything in the show notes. So guys, make sure you go and look at the show notes. They're there for you. (laughs) Hannah, it has been so great connecting with you today. Thank you again so much for sharing your story. Oh, it's been such a treat. Thanks so much to you, Caitlin. Thanks for listening to the Rural Woman Podcast, a proud member of the Positively Farming Media Podcast Network. The Rural Woman Podcast is more than just a podcast. We are a community. A huge thank you to the Rural Woman Podcast team, audio editor Max Hofer, and admin support from Kim & Co. Online. A special thanks to our Patreon executive producers, Sarah Reedner from Happiness by the Acre and Carrie Munven from Laystone Farms. 
to learn how you can become a Patreon executive producer or other ways to financially support the show, head on over to wildrosefarmer.com to learn more. Be sure to hit the follow or subscribe button wherever you listen to the podcast to get the latest episodes directly on your playlist. And if you are loving the show, please be sure to leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or any other platform that accepts ratings and reviews. You can connect with us on social media at The Rural Woman Podcast and with me at Wild Rose Farmer. One of the best ways you can support the show is by sharing it. Send this episode to a friend or share on your social media. Let's strengthen and amplify the voices of women in agriculture together. Until next time, my friend, keep sharing your story. Your story.